the children may be dismissed for preschool play and worship and children's church. And I'll invite everyone else to find 1 Corinthians chapter 4 in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in the pew in front of you. You can follow along there, or it will be projected this morning as well. We're working our way through 1 Corinthians um, each summer, and we find ourselves in chapter 4. I'd like for us to pray together before we launch into our study. We need God's help to not just understand God's word, but to actually receive it and be changed by it. So let's pray. Father, please speak to us now through your word. Or give us uh, the mental stamina, the, the clarity of mind and energy to listen attentively and alert to your word. We want to hear from you, not just so we can know more stuff about you, but so that we can grow closer to you and be transformed. So Lord, please accomplish your will in us through your word now. Help me to preach it well. In Jesus' name, amen. So I had planned to review everything that we have covered so far in 1 Corinthians up to chapter 4, but really chapter 4 verse 1 sums it up pretty well, Paul's argument. If you look at chapter 4 verse 1 of 1 Corinthians, it says, This is how one should regard us, referring to Paul himself and Apollos and other church leaders, This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. This pretty well sums up everything he's been talking about since midway through chapter 1. The Corinthian Christians were divided because of divided loyalties to different teachers. Some of them thought Paul was better. Some of them thought Apollos was better. Some of them thought Cephas was better. And so they were dividing up and they were causing um, arguments and jealousy among each other. And so for all these chapters so far, Paul's just been trying to explain to them that there's no place for that in the body of Christ. And one of his main reasons is because church leaders are servants and stewards. Servants, we talked about a few weeks ago, is like a table waiter, a waiter at a restaurant. Stewards is kind of the idea of a manager or or someone who's been entrusted with something just to take from one place to another, take care of, make sure it's not messed up in any way. Church leaders are servants and stewards, not celebrities or gurus. And we, as Christians forever, even since the days of 1 Corinthians, have had a tendency to elevate the most talented church leaders to the level of celebrity or being a guru of some sort. And there's no place for that in the church of Christ. Church leaders are not celebrities or gurus. I remember when I was in Bible college at Southeastern uh, Baptist Theological Seminary in Wake Forest. Uh, it's one of, the, one of the six or so large Baptist seminaries. And so we would occasionally get big-name speakers who would come to chapel Now, chapel was required of students every day during the week. So you went to your Bible classes, and then every time it was chapel, you were supposed to go to chapel. And it was an hour-long service, a long sermon. You think my sermons are long. The messages would be long, okay? 
most of the time students would not go. I mean, you would, if you went to chapel on an average Tuesday, uh, it was just a scattering of people about, most people did not go to chapel regularly. But if a big name speaker was coming, it would just miraculously just fill up. Every pew in that massive chapel would be full of students. I remember the, the uh, day we had John MacArthur come. Anybody know who John MacArthur is? A couple? Okay, in conservative Christian like writing and, and preaching, he's a big deal. Uh, if you're at a Southern Baptist college, John MacArthur is a big deal. Okay, he is a Christian celebrity. And the day he came to chapel, it was standing room in the back. People were standing in the lobby looking through the door. Now, he was preaching the same Bible that the no-name guy on Monday preached and that everybody stayed in and slept in for. But this was John MacArthur. And I think people even lined up to get him to autograph things. I, I, don't think, I think he refused to do it, but some of these big-name people would autograph people's Bibles. Now, I'm pretty sure John MacArthur refused to do that. But some of these people would autograph people's Bibles because we, just like the world, we naturally delineate into these celebrity subcultures, and the church tends to do the same thing, and it's unhelpful. It's not good. It's not the way we're meant to operate. John MacArthur or Billy Graham, as well as Matt Larkin, who spoke last week, and Matt Broadway speaking this week, we're all just on the wait staff at the restaurant. And we're all just bringing you the, the same food that God himself has prepared through Jesus Christ. Just servants, stewards, not celebrities, not gurus. Now, this is really important because when it comes time to evaluate a church leader, we have to keep this in mind or we'll evaluate the wrong things. And he goes on to explain this in verse 2. Look at how he follows this thought in verse 2. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Faithfulness. Faithfulness is the primary metric when evaluating a church leader. Not skill and not charisma and not eloquence, but faithfulness. Now, skill and charisma and eloquence are great bonuses We love to have those, but mainly church leaders need to be faithful. It is required of stewards that they be faithful. If you're at a restaurant, the main thing you want from your waiter is to know that they are going to faithfully and in a trustworthy manner get your food from the kitchen through the dining room to your table while it's still hot without any of it having fallen to the floor and been scooped back up and put back on the plate in good condition, that faithfulness is the main thing, the main requirement in a good servant. Now, it'd be great if they have a good sense of humor and they're beautiful. Sure, that's a great bonus, but mainly, just get my food here without dragging it on the floor or getting spittle into it while you're talking to your coworker or anything like that. Don't reach down with your bare hand to get the lemons and put them in the tea. And I've seen that when I was a waiter. I've seen that happen. I don't get lemon in my tea because of it. Faithful trustworthiness is what we want in our servants, our stewards, our church leaders. We want them to faithfully 
go to the kitchen and bring us what the Lord has cooked up. Okay? That's the main criteria. Now, I point that out because the whole rest of our passage, we're going to go all the way through verse 13. The whole rest of this passage, Paul is concluding his long argument about why what the Corinthians were doing was wrong in dividing into these fan clubs. And he's going to conclude by pointing out why this sort of um, evaluation and critiquing within the church is just unhelpful. It's just unhelpful. And we're going to see three reasons. The passage is broken up into three pretty neat paragraphs, each one explaining a different reason why critiquing church leaders beyond the category of faithfulness is ultimately unhelpful. Okay, and I am aware that this may seem extremely self-serving. I know that this may seem self-serving, but this is where we're at in 1 Corinthians. This is why I like to preach through books of the Bible. So when I come and I preach a sermon to you on why you shouldn't critique church leaders, you won't look to one another and say, I wonder what somebody said to them last week. Nobody said anything to me last week. This is just where we find ourselves. So the first reason in this first paragraph Criticism of church leaders, aside from their faithfulness, you should definitely be looking critically to make sure your church leaders are faithful. Okay, faithful to Christ, faithful to the gospel, faithful to the word. But the first reason why critiquing beyond that in the area of skill or charisma or these types of things is unhelpful is because human judgment is superficial. Human judgment is inherently superficial. Read with me verses 3 through 5. Paul writes, but with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So here's Paul pouring his life out as a minister of the gospel for, his, for the different churches, including the Corinthians. And he gets word that within the church, people are comparing and contrasting his ministry to Apollos. And they're saying, man, Apollos is really eloquent. He's a really dynamic teacher. Paul, Paul doesn't really bring much to the table in terms of eloquence and things like that. When he was here, he was sort of a weakling. You know, he spoke in kind of a monotone. And so Paul gets word that people are just sort of starting to badmouth him and starting to elevate Apollos instead. And You need to know, when you critique a minister's ministry, I can tell you firsthand, it's like you're critiquing a mother's child. Okay, it's a very sensitive area. Okay, these are things we're pouring our heart and life and soul into. And yet Paul's like, I don't really care. He says, it's a very small thing. That's what he says there in three. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you. And it may sound like bravado, you know, like maybe he's sort of trying to hold back tears. He's like, I don't care. But I think he's genuine. 
It's a very small matter what the Corinthians think of his ministry in terms of its eloquence and, and success in that regard. And he goes on to say, it's a very small matter what anybody thinks, including myself. I don't even take my own critique of my ministry all that seriously. Now, that's a big statement coming from a minister whose ministry is getting picked apart and evaluated by his church like this. How can he say that? He can say that because the Lord has revealed to him how superficial human judgment really is. Our judgment, our understanding of one another in this regard is just superficial. So Paul says, and Paul rests in the fact that it is the Lord who judges him. It is the Lord who will judge me. It is the Lord who will judge you. Now, some of you who may struggle with fear of man, people-pleasing issues, who are undone, if someone speaks a critical word of you, this may be really freeing for you. It's a small thing when people say these sorts of things. And it's small because they don't really know you like the Lord knows you. It is the Lord who will judge you. Human judgment is superficial in two ways. For one thing, we don't know each other's secrets. Paul says there will be a time when Jesus returns, and there in the middle of verse 5, he will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness. Now, I wonder if any of you have any secrets that the people sitting near you in this church may not know, and if they did know, might drastically change their perception of you or that thing you said or that thing you did if they only knew. But there's things hidden in darkness that not everybody does know. Secret sins that we struggle with, secret guilt over things in our past, secret wounds over things done to us in our past, secret ambitions, secret goals, secret hopes and dreams. We don't always know all these things. And Paul's saying, you Corinthians, you don't know all the things hidden in darkness about me. You, you may not know all the things I did when I was Saul before I became Paul. And so your judgment of me is just a very small thing. The Lord judges me. And when he returns, he'll reveal these things. The second way human judgment is superficial is that we don't always understand each other's motivations. He goes on to say that when Jesus returns, he will disclose the purposes of the heart. We don't always understand each other's motivations. Sometimes we do things that seem bad, but we were trying to do good. Or sometimes we do things that seem good, but we had bad motivations for it. And not only do we not always understand each other's motivations, I don't even think we fully understand our own motivations. So, for example, I'm preaching to you right now, and I like to think that my motivation is the fact that I love God and I believe his word is truth and I love you and I simply want to be a good waiter and I want to serve God's word to you faithfully and that's it. I would really like to believe that I'm just totally humble and clean in my motivations. But if I'm honest, I know that my motivations are compromised and tainted by other things that aren't so noble by the desire to, to um, 
receive praise. You know, the desire to have someone say, that was a good sermon after the service. Or by the desire to be accepted. Or I'm sure there are other motivations just all wriggled in to the good motivations, tainting them. And if I'm not clear on my own motivations, there's no way you can be clear on my motivations. And Paul is saying, y'all don't understand. Y'all don't know like the Lord knows. So I'm not that concerned with your judgments. You don't know me or Apollos the way the Lord does. So I'm just concerned with what he thinks. Because he will judge. When Jesus returns, each one will receive his commendation from God. Ultimately, this is the big important point of this paragraph. Ultimately, it is the Lord who will judge each and every one of us. And it's not going to be based on performance. It's going to be based on heart reality. Ultimately, each one will receive his commendation from God. So your judgment and my judgment of other human beings is inherently superficial and not to be taken all that seriously. Some applications for this. Beware of getting too wrapped up in any one minister's ministry. Beware of putting too much stock in any church leader. Beware of thinking too highly of any minister. Remember, any church leader or minister is a mere mortal, is a human being with all the flaws and struggles that you have. Just put up on a bit more of a stage with a bit more impact. You know, as much as you are susceptible to sin, so is any church leader. And one reason I really work hard to not quote any contemporary pastors and preachers and writers when I preach is because I don't know if next week it'll come out that they're a huge hypocrite and they've been embezzling from their church because these are people that live across the country and I don't know them. So I don't want to include their quotes into my sermon. I don't know for sure if they're going to prove faithful to the end. So if I quote anybody, I try to quote people who are already dead. So that won't happen. Another application, beware of critiquing ministers or anybody else for that matter. Beware of the temptation to critique. Humbly give people the benefit of the doubt, knowing that your judgment is just based on the surface of what you can see. And you don't know what all has brought that person to that point. So criticism beyond the category of faithfulness when it comes to church leaders is unhelpful because human judgment is superficial Secondly, it's ungrateful because we're all recipients. That's the point in the next paragraph, verses 6 and 7. Let's read those together. Paul writes, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? The big idea of this paragraph is we don't have anything that the Lord didn't give to us. 
As a church, we didn't earn anything nor achieve anything. Anything we have, the Lord gave to us, including ministers. Okay, the ministers that any church has or any denomination has have been given by the Lord who calls people into ministry and gifts people for ministry. None of this are things that anybody brings about by their own cleverness or abilities. So the picture here of these Corinthians is, is like a family on Christmas morning. And a father has given his kids good gifts. And all the kids have different sorts of gifts. And they unwrap their gifts. And the father's expecting them to be just so grateful for these presents. And to come and you know, hug them and just play with them and share them with each other and enjoy them. But instead... They're using their gifts to try to provoke jealousy in one another. Oh, that's all you got? Well, look what I got. Look how great this is. I bet you wish yours could do this. And they're using the gifts as an occasion for arrogance and pride and division and inflicting pain upon one another. Paul is saying, your heavenly father is looking at you and he's given you me. He's given you Paul, the apostle who, yes, I came in weakness and trembling and that wasn't eloquent, but I was God's gift to you in that time to establish the church and plant the church. And then God gave you Apollos, who was more gifted as a teacher. And God's doing great things through him. But it's all grace. It's all gifts. It's nothing that you earned or have any reason to boast in. Just gratitude. That's the only proper response. Not arrogance. So, so if Doolin's Grove for, well, Doolin's Grove, for example, we, right across the street from ACGC, as I mentioned earlier, we just have a lot of really good teachers and former pastors. Now, that's not because we're so great. For some reason, God has looked at us and said, I'm just going to really bless you guys with, with a Jeff Walsh and a Matt Larkin and a Ron Thomas and all these people. I'm going to bless you as such that if, if Matt gets hit by a bus, you've got three better preachers in line behind him. Now, that's no cause to look at any of our sister churches and boast or brag. We should be humbly grateful for what we have. When you walk down the hall and pass the pictures of your former ministers, it's just be gratitude. Lord, thank you for giving us these guys over the years. Thank you. Thank you for not leaving us as, as orphans. You, you provided leaders for us. Yeah, as you look at your official board and your BCE and your trustees and your deaconesses and your deacons and your committees, thank you, God, for giving us these people gifted in these different ways to serve in these different capacities. Thank you. Not critiquing, not judging, and not comparing, but just grateful. We are all kids who have been really bad this year And we're in our footy pajamas on Christmas morning, just opening up gift after gift that we do not deserve. So it's just all humble gratitude here. No arrogant, proud boasting. You know, the gospel itself, Jesus Christ himself, we were enemies running away from God with all of our might when he graciously saved us. Blessed us through Jesus Christ with every spiritual blessing. Adopted us as sons so that we could be with him forever. We are recipients with a capital R. We are recipients of amazing grace. How humbling. How freeing. 
recipient mindset is a precious antidote to poisonous criticism in a church. God gave us Jesus Christ. God gave us salvation. God gave us each other. God gave us ministers. So let's thank God for them. Let's thank God for your teachers, your house-to-house hosts. Thank God for all of our folks at ACGC and their positions. We have a lot to be grateful for. Thank God for the the truly gifted authors and pastors and teachers that we get to listen to on podcasts or watch on TV or hear on the radio or read their books. God is just lavishing gifts upon his people. He's so good. So criticism of church leaders beyond the topic of faithfulness is unhelpful because human judgment is superficial. It's ungrateful because we're all just recipients. And finally, it's uncalled for. Because ministry is not a spectator sport. It's uncalled for because ministry is not a spectator sport. And this gets into the final paragraph of this section. We'll just read verses 8 and 9 together. Paul writes, Already you have all you want. Now, a little tip to understand this, this little bit. He's being sarcastic here. Did you know that the Bible has sarcasm in it? I was talking with uh, Tim and Teresa Smith sitting right there the week before last, and he said something um, that was very sarcastic and funny. And I could tell Teresa was like, don't be sarcastic with the pastor. Like it's not good. I said, well, actually, there's sarcasm in the Bible, and this is an example of it. It's just a rhetorical way of making a point. He says, already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. For I think God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. The Corinthians had become complacent, and instead of gratefully participating in ministry alongside these church leaders, They were sitting back like spectators in the stands at a gladiatorial uh, arena. And like spectators, they were looking down on Paul and Apollos and Cephas who were bloodied and sweaty down on the arena floor. And they were just critiquing them, critiquing their form, critiquing the way they used the javelin and the sword. The language he uses is the language of these arenas. Exhibited last of all in this original context, would have brought forth the idea of these gladiator contests in the arena where late in the day, they would bring out people who were just going to die. They would bring them out. They had no way of defending themselves. Often they were naked, just sent out, and wild animals would kill them. And while all this carnage was happening down in the arena, the spectators would be sitting there eating giant turkey leg, laughing, mocking the people down there. Paul's basically saying, y'all are acting like that. Y'all are acting like spectators here while Apollos and I are killing ourselves in ministry. A spectator mindset is disastrous to a church. Every single one of us is called into ministry. If you are a Christian, you are called into ministry. Now, your calling, my calling may be different, but we're equally called into ministry. 
we're all called down into the arena. There aren't two classes of Christians, those who are called to minister and those who are not. Those who are called to evangelize and those who are not. Those who are called to make disciples of all nations and those who are not. We're all in the arena together. It reminds me of a story about a guy named Dwight L. Moody. If I'm not mistaken, is dead. So I don't think he's going to disappoint me this week. He um, was in conversation with a woman who did not care for his way of sharing the gospel. And so she was critiquing his way of sharing the gospel and questioning him about it. And she basically said, I don't really like the way you go about this. And he said, well, you know, I don't really like the way I go about it either. I wish there was a better way. How do you do it? And she blushed and got embarrassed and said, well, I, I don't really. And he said, well, I like my way of sharing the gospel better than your way of not sharing the gospel. It also reminds me of this quote from Theodore Roosevelt. I like to read about him. I have no reason to think that he was a Christian. Maybe he was. But I wonder if you've heard this quote. It is not the critic who counts. Not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles. Or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena. Whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming. But who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. So we need to ask ourselves in the face of this scripture, are we ministers or are we spectators? Are we ministers or are we spectators? When we hear God's word, do we make it our business to respond to it? with total obedience and allegiance to Christ? Or do we merely critique the delivery? Are you engaged in ministry? Or do you only occasionally watch it? Now you may think, well, how can I? I'm not, I didn't go to seminary. I'm not a pastor, a teacher, a preacher, What am I supposed to do? Well, I think it may be more simple than we often make it. The Bible teaches that when God saves us, he saves us for good works prepared in advance for us. That's in Ephesians chapter 2. He saved us for good works that he prepared beforehand for us to walk in. So just think about your life situation right now, the people that God has placed in your life right now are placed there For you to love and to serve, to share the gospel with, to encourage forward in their walk with Christ, to pray for. And just starting to think about the people in your life, you'll begin to enter the arena. Through prayer, you'll enter the arena. Through conversations over lunch, you'll enter the arena. Through phone calls and texts, you'll enter the arena. 
And you'll begin to live as a Christian, selflessly serving the people around you for the glory of God, for the making of disciples. It's for all of us. Beware of the poisonous propensity to watch rather than work together in Christian ministry. So, in concluding this passage, and really concluding this whole line of thinking, because next week he's going to pivot away from this whole, we've been talking a long time about this. Next week he pivots away from that into other issues. And uh, timing-wise, it's perfect, because he talks about spiritual fatherhood next week, and it's Father's Day next week. And I didn't plan it that way, it's just where we are as we work through the book, which I think is always really neat. But in closing... I do want to invite us all out of our spectator chairs and into the arena, but I want us all to count the cost before we do. And that's how he closes this section. That's how I'll close the section as well. And this corresponds pretty well with Matt's sermon last week. Consider the contrast between the way the Corinthians were thinking of themselves and the reality that Paul was experiencing as a minister. He writes in verse 10, We are fools, For Christ's sake. But you are wise in Christ. The sarcasm continuing. We are weak. But you are strong. You are held in honor. But we in disrepute. What he's saying is. Down here in the arena. Where real ministry is happening. The world doesn't look at us. And think that we are wise. Strong and honorable. The world looks at us and thinks. What are y'all thinking? You look like a fool. Why are you going to these weak church services? And holds us in disrepute. The Corinthians were using worldly standards to grade their church leaders, and it's just an incompatible system. Because the kingdom of God subverts and turns upside down and on its head everything that the world holds dear. So if you will enter the arena of ministry, expect the world to look at you like a fool and a weakling. And we're experiencing it more and more as our culture is turning away from this Christendom mindset of, oh, we're all Christians. You're starting to feel it, and I believe we'll probably feel it more and more as time goes. I believe the Lord's trying to prepare us for that. Soon ministry in America may look like Paul's ministry as he outlines it in verses 11 through 13. He says, To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted, which just means badly treated, and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world. The refuse of all things. I can't promise you that if, if you will wholeheartedly jump out of the stands into the arena that you're going to have an easy life because of it. Not in this world. This world's too messed up. Ravaged by sin. You know, this is far from the megachurch glamour that we like to hold up in America or with the prosperity gospel. If you follow Jesus, everything's going to go great. You're going to have a new car. You're going to have a big house. You're going to have health and wealth. The Bible does not promise that stuff. Almost the opposite. 
Your grocery budget may stretch so thin that you don't know what you're going to do. You may never enter a mall again. It'll be only thrift shops and hand-me-downs. You may be poorly treated out there in the public square, in the political discourse, and on the talk shows. Reviled, persecuted, and slandered, we respond with blessing, endurance, and courtesy. Though the world may perceive us as garbage, as he describes in verse 13, we know that the world's judgment of us is superficial, and it is the Lord who judges us. And when Jesus returns, we will receive our commendation from God, not from the world. This is why we cannot approach ministry with worldly standards, but with kingdom standards. Judging and critiquing. Not thinking so much about faithfulness, but skill and charisma in our church leaders. Moving along with the superficial, ungrateful spectator mentality. We will move forward in humility, trusting in the Lord, grateful for his gifts, ministering together. And the way I'd like to close the sermon is reminding you that when Jesus ministered on earth, this is how he taught. I want to remind you of the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. It says in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, And utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We need to stick together in the arena of Christian ministry. There's a lot of good work to be done. But it must be done with the kingdom of God in mind. Not the kingdom of this world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Let everything true that was spoken today settle down deeply into our hearts and transform the way we think, the way we see the world, the way we see the church, the way we see our church leaders, the way we see ministry. Or forgive us for any areas in which we have been arrogant or proud or boastful. Forgive us for times that we relied on our own superficial judgment rather than yours. Forgive us for times that we've been ungrateful for the gifts you've given us. Forgive us for times when we've been spectators. Lord, please help us to trust in you and gratefully and humbly minister together. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen.